Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. In today's episode, Greg is in conversation with three incredible leaders, which include Jonathan Gardner, who is the director of Guard House, which provides paid internships to college students of color in Charlotte, North Carolina, within small businesses and nonprofits. We also have Jania Massey, who is the founder and executive director of Stiletto Boss University, which is a youth internship training program for girls ages 11 through 18. That's all about collaboration, community impact, and sisterhood. And lastly, we have Manuel Campbell, who is the CEO of Aspire Community Capital, and their mission is to radically transform lives and communities through small business ownerships. All three of these incredible leaders served on a panel together surrounding leading nonprofits of small businesses as Black-led founders and owners. So in this episode, you all will learn about what was discussed during that panel and what they learned, which includes positive changes or feedback since the panel concluded, what the funding community can do differently, how to better support Black-led nonprofits and organizations, and advice to aspiring nonprofit leaders. We hope you guys enjoy this one. All right, y'all. Welcome to the Square Pizza Pod. Thanks Hello. for having us. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm excited uh, to kind of have you all. It's one of the first times we've had three individuals at the same time um, kind of share about your guys' experience and uh, going to tell the listening audience probably about the context of like kind of how we got to this point, of course, and then kind of uh, tell more about you. Let me cut my Anthony Hamilton off. There you go. My bad. Um, but let's just start for those that obviously don't see us right now. Who's in the room with us? Let me start with my man to the left. Hi, everybody. My name is Jonathan Gartner. I'm the founding executive director of Guardhouse. We provide paid internships to college students of color here in Charlotte within small businesses and nonprofits. That's great. Thank you, sir. Ms. Massey? Yes, this is Jania Massey. I am the proud founder and executive director of Stiletto Boss University, which is a youth entrepreneurship <laughs> training program for girls age 11 through 18. That is all about collaboration, community impact, and most importantly, sisterhood. Thank you, sir. And it's certainly a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Manuel Campbell, and I'm the CEO of Aspire Community Capital. And our mission is to radically transform lives and communities through small business ownership. Uh, we do that through a four-pronged approach that focuses on both technical assistance, mm-hmm. as well as providing coaching and access to masterminding series, as, as well as access to capital. Mm. It's incredible. So. Square Pizza Pod, right? We built this to host and feature leaders of color doing incredible work in Charlotte, but really across the country. And then knowing, you know, primarily you two, and then hearing a lot of great things about Emmanuel from afar and a lot of great people. Um, there was an infamous photo, <laughs> right, with also Courtney, and we're going to have Miss Courtney jump on soon. Um, and I think this photo was coming out of a panel that you guys served on, and my understanding, talking about uh, the work leading uh, nonprofits or small businesses, but particularly leading it as black-led founders and owners. And I think that really sparked kind of bringing you guys here today to talk about that. So mm-hmm. I think that's the context. We'd love for one of you three to kind of share more about what was kind of discussed in that panel, what was the point of the panel, and then we can kind of go from there. Well, the panel, well, I'll start. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Y'all like, I don't know. Please. Um, the panel <laughs> was basically born because I actually received funding from Safe Charlotte, which was um, federal funding from the city, and United Way managed that fund. So a part of that was another capacity building training. 
no point intended. There's always capacity when you get grants now, mm -hmm. but there mm -hmm. was capacity building components. Gonna have to follow to up it. on that, but go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> there was capacity building components to it, and a part of that capacity building, they wanted to have uh, panels about specific topics. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people in that particular cohort of Safe Charlotte, because it has changed since last year, were black led founders, mm -hmm. mostly grassroots and probably under $500,000 in, why are you laughing, Jonathan? <laughs> under $500,000, uh, or it, I can't even remember, I'm just, it was grassroots leaders. Mm -hmm. So um, the, uh, I cannot remember her name right now, she's going to kill me, but she ended up putting together the panel, and this panel basically was talking from other grassroots leaders, which just so happened to include all of us and Courtney, and it was a very interesting panel yes it was and looking back on it i understand why it wasn't why it was so intimate mm -hmm. because if it was more people there mm -hmm. it probably would have set off some fire alarms and, and with and the it, things we were saying oh absolutely and and just to kind of dive even a little deeper mm -hmm. i mean we really had very candid discussions about everything from the philanthropic community here in charlotte um, I would even go into details around, you know, how do we engage with board members? Mm -hmm. How do we manage board members? Mm -hmm. um, giving them perspective just around as you grow and develop as a nonprofit organization, how might you market your service? Uh, mm -hmm. I know Jonathan here does a phenomenal job in fundraising. Um, that's part of the discussion to really understand not only the operations of a nonprofit, but just as importantly, the fundraising capacity of nonprofits, mm -hmm. the the management of social media, um, mm -hmm. public persona, all those different pieces play a role in your development as a nonprofit leader, but just as importantly, um, the image that you produce and create around your organization. Mm. Yeah. And I think we hit on a lot about just the advocacy that we didn't know that we were going to have to do being mm -hmm. grassroots leaders. And mm -hmm. I think this generation of grassroots, and I say generation, not that we're all the same age, but this, I guess, movement. I'm in your generation. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to pick up on that. Yeah. Okay, that was good. No, 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 no. I'm quiet. <laughs> but in this, you know, I, I, I think me and Manuel started the same time, like 2016, and then Jonathan, right. when did you come? 2019. 2019, and then just watching Jonathan grow, it's like, oh, a lot of things that, that me and Manuel would talk about are mm -hmm. capacity. I start seeing the fruits of the labor in you yeah. with mm -hmm. how you were raising funds and stuff like that. So it was like, okay, I feel like we have a village here, yes. you know, but also the advocacy is not dead. You know, a lot of times you speak all the time, mm -hmm. especially being black. You're speaking up and nobody you feel like nobody's hearing you. And and just as importantly as that, you know, the three of us as well as most of the people who are in that setting survived COVID. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a different perspective. The reality is um, I started actually, we, as Jania mentioned, we started our organization in 2019. Cool. We actually started providing programming in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, I only had technically one program in place when COVID happened. Yeah, yeah. And so the majority of my programming activity has taken place virtually. Yeah. And now that as we're trying to transition out of that virtual environment into more impersonal engagement, my whole business model has now shifted to a certain extent. Yeah. And now we have reassessed and reevaluated and taken what we've learned from the experience of going through COVID. And some of the things that we want to hold on to, mm -hmm. but just as importantly, some of the things we need to kind of pivot on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think like that's what's most interesting in terms of guardhouse is that 
though we started in 2019, our first cohort was 2020. Mm-hmm. So we had a work-based program mm-hmm. where there was no workplace, mm-hmm. right? So for us, trying to navigate that system in a virtual environment was definitely difficult. Yeah. And being a new organization that's trying to find funding that doesn't have the data yet, that doesn't have the true backing of the community because it's in a virtual and a pan- during a virtual environment, but also throughout a pandemic was difficult. But ultimately, I think for us, it was being able to just be agile throughout the pandemic and learn, okay, these are the things people were doing before the pandemic, but now trying to think forward because we knew at some point we were going to be back outside. Mm -hmm. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it it was going to happen. Yeah. So trying to think forward as to how did our program need to start to evolve in order to meet the continual needs that students were facing. Right. And see me, I I just went out, hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I started in 2016. I Mm -hmm. think I had a pilot in 2015, left my job 2016, and I have been on the ground running Mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. So, and even our journeys and me learning Mm -hmm. with talking to me, because me and Manuel, we were like together for like two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, not like in a programs relationship. every, every day. <laughs> not in a relationship, but nope. heard it here first. Clarity. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but we were we just so happened to be aligned in back to back capacity build or at co- concurrently, concurrently, <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the same time, um, going through getting our Duke University um, nonprofit mm. certificate, certificate, going yep. through Unite Charlotte, Unite Charlotte program, cultivate, yeah, cult- <laughs> cultivate, like yeah, he was just a I saw manual like twice a week mm-hmm. for the whole, like two years and it was a lot mm. and I, but i think you know both <laughs> a lot to see him not i know right I know and she learned a go. lot too <laughs> yeah. um but I, I think that that really speaks to uh, what i would speak what i would refer to as the infrastructure to support nonprofits currently in the charlotte ecosystem um i do think that there are a tremendous amount of resources that now are available that probably have come online within the last last five to seven years right and so there are support services, just as the one um, Jania was talking about that we spoke on the panel of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to kind of lend to the up-and-coming nonprofit black leaders the perspective and the insight and experiences that we've had over the last five, four or five years. And hopefully they won't make as many mistakes as we've made yeah. to get to where we are. Yeah. And I want to honor the, the intimate setting, I think, that you guys shared about the panel, about why it was so powerful but curious of anything you feel comfortable sharing there, whether it was about the mistakes, whether it was kind of the structural systems of funding for nonprofits and black-led nonprofits. Curious about what kind of stuck out to you as you guys reflect from that time together on the panel. Um, For me, it was just speaking up. I think that, and I'm, I'm speak for myself, but I do feel like at times some of these capacity building programs do not meet the nonprofits where mm-hmm. they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. Can so, you maybe just define capacity building, Ms. Massey, for those that aren't as familiar with that? Yes. Term? So a lot of times with the grants, especially now, um, and I don't know if it's because we're black led. I don't know if they just assume we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> but um, it's basically where you're going through classes about how to build a board, how to do fundraising, how to write. Well, we don't even talk about how to write grants. But that's why that uh, panel started to spiral. Yeah, started to spiral. Yeah, very, yeah. yeah it was spiraling. Ooh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, different things that you need to know in order to be in the world of philanthropy, which I also say the, the business of giving, mm-hmm. you know, because sure. a lot of times we do not acknowledge 
that nonprofits are businesses. We're just tax mm-hmm. exempt. Mm-hmm. A lot of time we do not acknowledge yes, that ma'am. an executive director title is no different than a CEO or a president title. And a lot of t- and I'm even with Manuel, like I'm I remember when he shifted, like I'm the CEO of yes. Aspire. And it's mm-hmm. like we all have to make that decision if we want to be to change our titles to reflect that mm-hmm. in order for us to come into a room so we can be seen as that Mm -hmm. and that is a conscious decision you have to make or you have to decide and this went this question went all the way to the left but capacity building is basically teaching you the things that you should know Mm -hmm. in the nonprofit space and is the hope around the differentiation piece that groups that do this take more time to kind of understand or audit where organizations are and what they need and not maybe assume um, that they don't have any sort of context. Like, curious how they these sorts of groups can better support you and others in that way. It's well, a I think that's it's a mixture. Okay. I think yeah. it just depends. Sure. But I also think that there has to be like you can't just go into the class and and not tell them where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, so we everybody has responsibility when it comes to capacity building. So for me, going into say Charlotte, a lot of it. And the beginning of the capacity building could have felt more elementary to me because at that point I had already been through three capacity Mm. building things Mm -hmm. before I got there. So now it's like, okay, now I'm going through the same thing of learning in here. And now I actually have application. I have execution. I've Mm -hmm. been doing this. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I'm saying I know it all, but also like these are the things that I need now because I am now moving to middle school. Mm -hmm. And granted, some of the other people are still in elementary, but I don't mind mentoring them and telling them how I got there which I felt what the panel was doing at that point but it's like where's my middle school teacher Mm -hmm. you know where where where, like I got my backpack on like where are we going you know so I think there has been an issue with just meeting people especially black led nonprofits where they are and there's a heavy assumption because we haven't made x amount in our annual budget that we don't know how to manage it Mm -hmm. and it's no a lot of it could deal with social capital Mm -hmm. or just not having the right alignment with who you should meet in the space of funders mm-hmm. or in or building your brand for individual donors, yep. you know? Cause I'll say Jonathan, just looking at you, you have built a brand to where you have community support from an individual donor perspective, especially in the beginning. Yeah. I could be wrong. But <laughs> but moving forward, now you have the because the buzz and people have heard about you, you also and, and your facts. So you're gonna give us that. Listen. That you <laughs> that you now yeah, have you're gonna, you gonna give us some facts, but now you have additional the donors, the fund the corporate spot. You know what I'm saying? So it all builds out at different times, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I was just like Jonathan. I built an organization, an invisible program. I'm mm-hmm, literally mm-hmm. trying to raise $20,000 for a program that had not even started yet. Mm-hmm. So I had to gain the trust of the community. And that was hard. It took me forever to raise $20,000. It took me maybe like nine, 10 months. Yeah. And I was in a fetal position mostly every day, mm-hmm. you know. But as I continue to grow, we continue to grow in our programming. And I would even reemphasize what Jania shared, in particular about Jonathan, because yep. one of the things that really stood out to me and did has you, stood out to me about Jonathan. Sorry, did Jonathan pay y'all? But no, I know. Why was talking so much about Jonathan? Jonathan. Like, this? But go ahead. I know. But I, I'm, I'm about to dote on myself <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> he's, but no, he's blushing, Jonathan, he's blushing over here, but Jonathan go ahead. Jonathan really was the, I was like, oh, look at Jonathan right yeah, here. Because it yeah. wasn't that, it looked, not saying it was easy for you, but it was just <laughs> it was like, hard. oh, maybe the fruits of our labor has really worked. Because it was like, oh my God. But go ahead, Jane. Well, absolutely. But, you know, I think that it was his creativity in COVID around Mm -hmm. fundraising that really set him apart. Mm -hmm. 
because you know most of us um you know i would you know i speak for myself mm -hmm. i was thinking about okay now what do we do for fundraising now that we're not meeting in person mm -hmm. nobody's coming out and so we st yet i still have overhead and underhead and mm -hmm. pro program expenses that i got to meet but I don't have as many funds coming in. And how do I continue to build that name recognition in the midst of this pandemic? And looking and seeing some of the creative things that Jonathan was doing with respect to fundraising certainly uh, provided me with some perspective about what was possible, mm -hmm. even in an environment where people were not congregating in locations and bringing brought together in the, you know, over chicken dinner or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was really impressed by that. And that was one of the things that I know we really emphasized to the group that we were speaking to. Mm -hmm. Like there are a lot of different ways to fundraise mm -hmm. and don't yeah. think fundraising fits into a small box. Right. I think to branch off of capacity building as well is that capacity building needs the action element. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of conversation, especially in the nonprofit space sharing different resources and everything like that. However, unless an organization, especially a grassroots organization, is actually able to provide or actually move in a sense of action with what they just learned, it's going to be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about capacity building and something that I did like about uh, Unite Charlotte is that each workshop that we went through provided time for us to actually put what we just learned into action. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And so... Yeah, we can have a lot of conversations. We can sit in a presentation. But what ultimately led that um, that panel that we sat on to go as well as it did is that we started to speak more to what you need to do mm -hmm. versus yeah. this is the theory, this is the model, this is this, this is that. We've already heard it multiple right, times. Right. Mm -hmm. How do we actually now implement it? And, yeah. and I would even speak to, you know, when we talk about, when I think of capacity building, I think more specifically what we're talking about is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you build out the infrastructure of your nonprofit organization? Mm -hmm. Let alone when we get into a dialogue around getting the audit done. Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. three of us have been through an audit. And so an audit for a nonprofit when it's just you and maybe one other person mm -hmm. is a daunting task and sure. responsibility. Expensive mm -hmm. task. And yeah. very expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but just kind of providing yep. the insight and perspective around how do you build out those systems to now track your expenses, to now know how to track your revenue that's mm -hmm. coming in, to make sure that you're meeting your obligations with respect to what you articulated in your grant applications. Mm -hmm. All those different components that sometimes prevent specifically black-led nonprofit organizations from being able to scale because mm -hmm. their reputation gets compromised, not because they don't have the passion, but because nobody has provided them with the direction and mm -hmm. how to build out the infrastructure. Or you can right. just say they haven't trusted them. Like, yeah. Oh, haven't like, trusted they, them. They, right. I think exactly. that's the most Some important part. About the trust, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nobody has trusted them to scale. Like mm -hmm. it's very skeptical, yeah. or there's a skeptical lens when it comes to black-led nonprofits in terms of, okay, are you actually doing the work? Yeah, you raise money, but how impactful is it? Right. right. Show me your data, right. and when you show the data, what does this mean? I mean, if you can read, then you know what it means. Right. right. Because it's very sh to the point. But I think there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to black-led organizations that are leading movements for black communities and brown communities as well mm -hmm. so it all boils down to trust mm -hmm. yeah can you say more about the trust piece because i'm guessing it's going to be two-way right it needs to be um trust being assumed from a funder or a philanthropic community mm -hmm. side as well and then um non-profit leaders showing the work and, and doing it as well so it probably has to be a little bit on both sides perhaps but say more about what you've done to be so su successful 
with the fundraising piece that they're giving you your flowers for and also the trust you've built across the community? So I think for the most part, you have to be extremely transparent. And mm-hmm. in terms of the black community, it's hard for us sometimes to, you know, be transparent because trust hasn't been built yet. Mm-hmm. So if I give you this information, what are you about to do with it? Is it going to hurt me in the end mm-hmm. or is it going to benefit me? So even then, that's a time consuming process and you might miss your opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think what helped Guardhouse is that in the very early phase of the organization, uh, we did a documentary that followed four students that we supported. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guardhouse had nothing. <laughs> so there was nothing right, for right. me to open up, not just our books, but our doors to demonstrate this is what's needed, right? Mm-hmm. I had to be transparent about the organization for people to actually understand what is needed. And so with me being transparent as an organizational leader, it built trust with the community. Mm-hmm. They seen me working out of my house. Mm-hmm. They seen me packing everything up into my Kia Optima. That's a hybrid. They they see me walking around the streets of Charlotte talking to small businesses about exactly what is going on with our interns. I was able to build trust in that way, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of a funder, I need to see that you actually trust me to utilize these resources. So in terms of dropping stats... Uh, Black-led nonprofits. I was waiting for them stats. Okay. <laughs> Come on. Bring. I was like, give it to me. Black-led nonprofits <laughs> receive 76% less of unrestricted funding than their white peers. Mm-hmm. Do y'all trust black people to run nonprofits? Mm-hmm. That's the question that I have for the philanthropic community. Yeah. And it's hard because then you have to kind of step into some of the rooms in this peppy mentality that everything's happy-go-lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm an introvert by heart, so you are. Yeah, yeah. When? <laughs> when, when you were introvert, <laughs> like what days of the week? <laughs> I can't tell. But, but like, okay. <laughs> but the reason why you can't tell is because my organization's on the line. Yeah, I can't mm-hmm. be an introvert. That is so true. And so, in terms of building trust, I need to know if I'm stepping out of my shell mm-hmm. to a funder that you will see me for what I'm trying to do with this mm-hmm. organization, yeah. but I need to see you trusting me as well mm-hmm. to provide the data and the impact. So I think I answered but the question. But that also leads to when you are a founder, mm. how much of the brand in the beginning is you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And your story mm-hmm. and why you did it. Like I was so over, and I still am over, even though I share the story why I started Saletto Boss University, mm-hmm. how that connected to me, how I'm serving the younger Jania. You know, that's where that came from, and it just has evolved to much more. But I also think when it comes to trust, we have to really lean into trust-based philanthropy because why do we have funders telling us what we need to do when mm-hmm. we're on the ground serving the community mm-hmm. and we hear from them first? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you setting the standards of the data that we need to report when we have the data that is true mm-hmm. and real and vulnerable and raw from what we're seeing with what's going on in the community, you know? So it has to be a shift in how we not only communicate, but we also have to stand in our authority and our authenticity to not be afraid to go in those rooms and tell the truth. You know, like you said, it's, it's a lot of vulnerability, but at the same time, it's some things that I have seen being in this founder position and starting something from the bottom where I'm like, why is this even necessary? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do I have to do all of this? You know, and that's because of the mindset of philanthropy, you know, and we 
somehow became responsible if we don't continue to speak up to changing that and how that looks and how we move forward because people fail to realize the NFL used to be a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Rolex is a nonprofit, mm-hmm. but they're luxury brands. Mm-hmm. Right. But they are nonprofits. I'm a and luxury brand. You are 100. percent Yes, you are. <laughs> you are. Yes, you are. But you know, it's 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 those things where the trust goes both ways. But I'll just add to what Jonathan said as far as just communicating what you need. Mm. You know, like. I remember first starting, you know, you need an audit. And it's like, no, by law, I don't. Mm-hmm. I just need to show you my 990E postcard mm-hmm. because I haven't even raised 50000 50000 exactly. <laughs> so like, I had to push back on that. And it was like, well, you're right, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like, so you can give me the money, but this is all I can offer you right now because I don't have this amount in the bank. Mm-hmm. And I can show you my bank statements, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm not required by law to do any type of audit, you mm-hmm. know. Or the same thing when you start getting into charitable solicitation license. Mm-hmm. A lot of the grassroots don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Yes. Some people don't even have it that's been in the <laughs> for years. And receiving funding. We're and not going to talk about funding. it. Yeah. Don't talk about it. Oh, right, right, <laughs> Some right. of these organizations that we're talking about have never done an official audit. Mm-hmm. But don't nobody talk about it. But yeah, you're asking me to do an audit? So if, we, if I could differentiate that, is the from, from your experience... Um, expectations to receive funding from certain groups appear to be different or higher for black-led organizations in your experiences compared to maybe what I'm hearing you say is more traditional old-school organizations. Correct. Is that true? Yeah, Mm -hmm. because there's some organizations that may have had more individual donors Mm. or may have had the social capital or somebody with money that's like, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars a year so you don't have to provide me with anything. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? But when you're starting to ask for money from these banks and all that stuff, then there are things in order that you have to have but, you know, it was I had a strong legal background. Everybody know I had an NDA. Like, mm-hmm. I had all these legal things in place. And people were looking at me like, how do you have this? You know, and it's like, well, I have someone on my board mm-hmm. that supports what I'm doing and is making sure that we're covered. Mm-hmm. I probably had my trademark done way before most. Some of these nonprofits don't even have a trademark, mm-hmm. you know. So I probably have had mine for over five years at this point, you know. So it's certain things that is happening that's not fair across the board. Mm-hmm. And it's been happening for years. But then, again, is that a trust issue? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Are you asking me for all this stuff because you don't trust me? Or are you trying to do things the right way because I'm black? Mm-hmm. And, and I think trust, to your point, goes definitely goes both ways. Um, you know, we all sitting at this table are engaged in the work that we do because we're fighting some s- systemic issues. True. And the expectation that, um, especially here in America, given the historical dynamics of the communities that we work with, to assume that we're going to be able to transform communities and, and people in a year of providing programming as we're kind of looking at pro- supporting um, the work that we do with various metrics that measure impact, I think it's somewhat disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I think that we can measure the people who come through our programs and the work that we do and um, how we see people grow and develop as they move through our respective programs. And, but I think the reality of saying now, okay, go out after having, you know, in my instance, six month worth of entrepreneurship training mm. and then go and changing your life when your life has been 35 years prior to you got mm-hmm. to me and mm-hmm. all of those historical experiences that mm-hmm. you've had that have led you to come into my program to assume that 
that's going to be transformed in a six-month to nine-month program right. is unrealistic. But our goal is to, at Aspire Community Capital, is just to remain engaged with them, mm -hmm. to help them grow and develop, and not to just provide programming and then push them out to the door, but to remain engaged with them and provide other wraparound services that we know that they need that could continue to impact them as individuals, but just as importantly as entrepreneurs. Right. To that metric piece and that success piece, are you seeing funders, the funding community, be more receptive? to, hey, instead of boiling the ocean, we're going to have these 10 very specific metrics around these 10 students or one program. Like, what's the feedback been like from the funder no. community <clears throat> when, when you offer that? I, th <clears throat> I think I'm most disturbed when a funder sends me um, a contract and they've outlined what my metrics should be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so no two-way communication. Right. Just like, here's, here it is. What's most important is, uh, as Jania shared and Jonathan shared, we're on the ground. So we can, we are having the conversations with our program participants, and we have the perspective and the insight, and we've developed a trust with them mm -hmm. that they're sharing with us, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. and, and what I think we should be measured by is how are we meeting the needs of our program participants. And in my space, uh, in the entrepreneurship space specifically, people ask about uh, things like, what I would consider to be economic development models. Uh, how many jobs have is this individual creating in the community? Where I think a better metric might be whether or not they're able to pay themselves in their own respective job. Right. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to kind of looking at, and, and for us, a, another emphasis is not only in terms of um, the entrepreneurship training that they may garner from our program, but our focus is around upward mobility and wealth creation. Mm -hmm. Well, we're looking at wealth creation as a generational experience that they should have. Right. How do they not only take the information that they've learned from us and pass it along to their children? Right. And how many people are influenced then by seeing them start a business? And right. they've always had aspirations of starting a similar business or even a different business, mm -hmm. but they've never seen anyone do that. Mm -hmm. right. And now being in that space to see that person do that has encouraged them to be able to do the same. And mm -hmm. know it's possible. And know it's possible. And right. just as importantly is the people who come through my program, come through and get the entrepreneurship training and realize entrepreneurship ain't for me. Mm. Right. I don't even know how we measure that. Mm -hmm. But the reality is for us, that's a win. Yeah, that's just as important as someone who comes through the program and, mm -hmm. and launches a business and grows that business successfully. Because people don't realize that entrepreneurship, especially for me in my story, taught me how to survive. Mm. And that's something that I, I'm that I can't even that's a gift of entrepreneurship for me. It's not saying I won't ever go back and work for someone else because I will if the bag. Right. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> <laughs> but it taught me it was able to teach me about the trueness of financial literacy, mm -hmm. balancing a business budget and bal balancing my personal budget. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it opened me up to that world of how to truly take care of yourself. That's when things click for me. But it was something Emmanuel said that it goes back to meeting people where they are. We are on the ground meeting people where they are, mm -hmm. but yet we have funders that's not meeting us where we are. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, wh what are we doing here? Because that's not how we measure. And like even our evaluation is based upon what our impact report, what we want to put in our impact reports, what our theory of change is, you know, like what we feel is beneficial for who we serve and mm -hmm. what they need. Mm -hmm. But those evaluations don't reflect that coming from the top down. I would say in terms of measurements for Guardhouse is that employment upon graduating college is technically still not a topic 
The assumption is if you go to college and you work hard, you mm-hmm. should you still be getting a job. And that's not the truth. But it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of being able to provide them with the reality that when a student goes to college, they're there to get an education. And it's a bonus if they walk away with a job. Right, right. That That's an uphill battle. And so I always talk to folks, especially when they're asking me about funding, identify what your not just what your niche is, but what's the most sellable niche. Majority of Garhouse's funding comes from small business support because of the operational support our students provide small businesses. Right. I can literally name one to two funders that we have that only support our work in terms of actually the student. Mm-hmm. So in terms of understanding your mission, being able to go to these funders and say, look, like this is our mission, 100%. That's extremely important. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing in our conversations right now is that nonprofits need to know how to demand mm-hmm. their worth mm-hmm. and based upon their worth. Yeah. Because there's such a deficit mentality as it relates to being a nonprofit mm-hmm. that honestly is not true. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget, I was asking for funding for one of our programs and it was stated that we were asking for too much based upon like what we were going to do with the student. Mm-hmm. And I asked, th- I literally ran down the list. How much does the curate cost to be filled up at your workplace? <laughs> right, right. How much are you given in a stipend for the parking permit in Uptown? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yet we're trying to do something that is one important, but two hasn't been done before. Right. Because Garhouse is the only and not just the first, but the only organization in Charlotte that is doing the type of work that it's doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I need the funding. Right. And and on the point of funding, and I think that's that's great, Jonathan, you know, and I don't know how much time Jonathan and and you here, Jania, put into fundraising, Mm. but a significant part (laughs) of of, of my job is is fundraising. Every day. There is... You wouldn't ask a for-profit business to create programs or to create a product Mm -hmm. and then try and figure out how you're going to raise money for the product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reality is that's what we are asked to do as nonprofit leaders. Mm -hmm. We have to develop. We have to prove prove a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And then we have to figure out how they're going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that we're all meeting needs in the community. And the people who need the services that we provide are not on a timeline. Like, they need them today. Mm-hmm. And so it would behoove the, the philanthropic community, in my humble opinion, to strongly consider and look at how do we provide more multi-facet and multi-year funding for nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. And so much of our time could then, or more of our time could be focused on, you know, really addressing some of the programming and meeting some of the needs of the community mm-hmm. than, and I don't want to say chasing dollars, sure. but but at least pursuing the funding that we need to continue to mm-hmm. our operations and, and, yeah. and, and the infrastructure of our organizations. Yeah, because oh, multi-year funding would solve a lot of problems for a lot of us because, if you're raising funds, and typically, like, I'm writing grants now for next year. Mm-hmm. So I, did I hit my goal for this year? You know, like, it's right, like those right. things. Like, wait, <laughs> sis, did you reach your goal for this year? Right, you still right. got some money to raise, but you trying to get it the next year. So it's, it's just that that 
it's a mindset of the con- I feel like I'm not if I'm not raising funds, I'm I'm trying to recruit new board members. Yes. I feel like I'm I'm either doing one or the two all the time or trying to update my board members about what's going on. Like we have a board meeting now, my phone is blowing up and I'm mm-hmm. like, it ain't even like it ain't even time yet. Give me like three more hours, you know? <laughs> but but it's the constant and it's the constant relationships that we have to build every yes. day. And those relationships may lead to funding or may lead to somebody that could help us with funding mm-hmm. or it may lead to a connect it's just a lot. We need a break. <laughs> <laughs> and to you know, I think to go a few ways here, but to build off the trust piece, but specifically with Manuel, like I remember when the Chetty report came out mm-hmm. and it appeared to be a surprise to maybe the funding community and, you know, the upper crust of Charlotte. But where I taught at West Charlotte, and I think a lot of the communities you guys serve, it wasn't a surprise to those. The report that came out mm-hmm. said it was supposed to be in terms of needing resources and the structural inequities, particularly for black and brown people in Charlotte. And so to your point around trust, it seemed to be a surprise for those that it shouldn't have been a surprise to, maybe because in, in my experience that trust wasn't given or those those communities haven't been listened to for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, it took this report, and hopefully there's been progress since that report, since it's happened. Um, but it wasn't a surprise to those that the report was supposed to be serving. And I think perhaps it was because that trust and didn't go two-way and that communication was never two-way around what um, those communities really need to, uh, to be successful. Well, in, 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 in this setting, in, in, and, you know, th- this is a fascinating conversation. Um, you have two unicorns, both Jania and I are from Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I went to West Charlotte. Yes. Dubsy. <laughs> yeah, <Dubsy>. absolutely. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> really kind of thinking through what the Chetty Report stated and what it impacts and, and the response to the Chetty Report uh, by the philanthropic community was. I don't think that I was surprised by mm-hmm. the Chetty Report because it wasn't the first time those statistics were had come to surface in some other report. Right. And, you know, we're notorious in Charlotte for doing a white paper mm-hmm. and then having a, an amazing conversation about what the white paper brought out and then creating a task force to task address what the white city. paper said mm-hmm. and then t- putting a tremendous amount of resources behind it until the next hot topic comes up and mm-hmm. we go through the same process over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wasn't surprised by the Chetty Report. I do think that there was a trust factor even with respect to not only how those issues and challenges were going to be addressed. Um, and I'll speak candidly, you know, my organization was one of the organizations that fit within the scope of what the Cheddar Report, well, not only the Cheddar Report, but what the task force mm. recommended as part of the solution to addressing the lack of upper mobility. Mm-hmm. And part of that conversation was around entrepreneurship and small business ownership mm-hmm. as one avenue for wealth creation for underserved communities. Yeah. Um, so we definitely continued and remain engaged in those conversations around what's now coming out or from the Cheddar Report and how we've been able to provide programming to address some of those challenges. Mm-hmm. I don't think the trust bridge has completely been crossed. Mm-hmm. I think that there, I think that on both sides of the bridge, people have come a little closer. Cool. But I still think that there are still concerns with respect to how genuine mm-hmm. are we with respect to this effort. Because there will be another hot topic in Charlotte. Mm. And I think that we all realize um, that at some point, the focus on upward mobility will kind of become a sideline issue Mm. and whatever the next topic is will become the focus. And unfortunately, um, um, I know that there's still a lot of people who are in the community who really need 
both not only the services <clears throat> that we provide, but just the services that are needed in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that um, not only the emphasis is on how we bridge the trust gap, but also how do we continue to provide the resources that are needed to meet those needs. Right. And for me with the Chetty, yeah, nothing. I was that kid. You know, what stuck out more for me was the social capital reporting part of it. You mm. know, I did not, my social capital was not built until college. Mm. Mm. So here I am, 18 years old, mm-hmm. going off to college, and I'm just now meeting or mm-hmm. connecting with people. And, and to be in full transparency, I was raised in a single-family home, so most of the people that were around me were in single-family homes. So I don't even recall meeting my first friend that had a mom and a dad in the mm-hmm. same place. And I'm like, ooh, what's that? You know, like right, it was right. not a part of my reality. So for me, the report, I do agree with Manuel as far as everything that he said, but it also made you look at the capacity of the city, Mm -hmm. right? So when you're looking at the school system, even though I did receive scholarships, you know, I was heavily involved, you know, I did have a relationship with my counselors. We still don't address the fact that in schools, there's only like one counselor for a whole grade school, you know, 400 kids. Some universities Some universities. (laughs) So how are they able to get this information that's out here? You know, it's one person trying to do the work for that's required for it. Mm-hmm. it needs to be a counselor for every kid if True. you want me to keep it real capacity building capacity building right right <laughs> so I, it made me look at the do the as far as a city do we have the capacity to make this work mm-hmm. and then if we always had the capacity then why has it been so hard for CMS to connect and partner better with nonprofits that are serving kids outside of the scope of the school mm-hmm. right it is like hell for me to I work in schools but it's hell for me to get in there. You know what I'm saying? It is pure hell for me. Mm-hmm. Now, have I found Avenue? Shout out to Communities and School Trio program. I've been able to go through there, you know, to serve in schools, West Charlotte, Harding. You know, I've served, I'm serving in Mooresville, and I also serve in communities. Mm-hmm. But it has been hard for me to partner with CMS in the way that I feel like other nonprofits could. Mm-hmm. And I think that they tried to have some friction or some reality about that at the pandemic because at this point you need nonprofits mm-hmm. because now the kids are at home. Now you don't know if they're being fed. You don't know why they can't log on. It's not only a food desert, it's a digital desert. Like it's all of these things that we've been talking about mm-hmm. for centuries, you know. So I'm going to stop there. Capacity though. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's what I want to bring up. Yes. Um, would love to shift to, you know, we had a, a question from the world famous Jason Terrell, uh, previously uh, co-founded Profound Gentleman, which is an amazing organization. Mm-hmm. And now at the Walton Family Foundation, one of the largest uh, philanthropic giving institutions really in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jason was curious around really all three of you, but any one of you, what you guys are doing or thinking about in your programs mm-hmm. to support kind of current students or college students for the workplace. And so whether it's certificates, social capital, um, entrepreneurship training, anything else, how are we kind of putting our arms around the students you all are serving to be mm-hmm. successful when they become um, kind of adults and going into the career field? Yeah. You want to go, Jason? Not Jason. A little <laughs> Shout out to Jason. Great, great question, yes, yes. Jason. Great, 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 great question. Great man. I, 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 <laughs> great, I will take great that. Man. I'll take that. <laughs> Jonathan, do you want to take that? Um, we do it very intentionally. Though, yes, for us, we prepare our students for the workforce by providing them with positions that they can provide operational support for. Mm-hmm. The conversations that we have with businesses first is extremely important. 
because they have to understand that today's workforce is different from their workforce. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, especially when dealing with an older generation or an older business, it's, I need them to do this. I need them to do that. And why aren't they here? Why aren't they there mm-hmm. in terms of capabilities and skills? Mm-hmm. Some of those things are coachable. Some of those things are also outdated. Mm-hmm. And so to understand exactly how the workforce is trending is extremely important because at the end of the day, you're going to need this student, whether if it's going to be as an intern or as a potential employee. And so a lot of times in terms of employment, it's easier to provide a template. It's easier to say that this is what I need you to do. This is how it needs to be done. I don't want you going outside of the box whatsoever, because then that means you have to take your time to understand them, to know how to properly coach them, Mm -hmm. to build relations with them, right? Mm -hmm. So on the flip side with the student, we want them to understand exactly the environment that they are entering. Mm -hmm. Because on the flip side, you can turn on TV and watch Grownish or something, Mm -hmm. and it looks beautiful, you know, the the huge revolt in terms of employment. Like, I'm going to be myself 100%. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Exactly. (laughs) You cannot wear your pajamas to work because that's what you wear to school. But, like, it's real. Like, that's 100% real. We want you to be authentically you, and we start every interview process with that. I want you to be authentically you, but as professional as that authenticity can show up as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's being able to figure out where is the middle ground because this is a new generation. So that helps us tailor our programming. That helps us tailor what internship sites that we actually do place students in. Mm -hmm. And it also determines if you will remain an internship site as well as if you will remain an intern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like with Stiletto Boss University, we have really dived into what entrepreneurship is. Mm. And um, and for those that do not know, entrepreneurship mm-hmm. is actually working for someone, but having that entrepreneurial skill set mm-hmm. mindset to actually lead, create, and implement into an already established business. And I know for us, because of what we're exposing them to through entrepreneurship, they are making better decisions about what should their major be. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They're making better decisions about, okay, so I did not learn about this in math. I'm learning calculus, but I didn't know how to balance a budget sheet, you know, mm-hmm. or a balance sheet or net net profit, all of that stuff. Now I'm understanding, like, why my mama say I ain't got no money, you know, mm-hmm. or, or what McDonald's I need to do. Right, McDonald's money's <clears throat> gone. So now they understand, okay, in order for me to get what I want, here's what I can do in entrepreneurship in order for me to get that. And that's very beneficial, especially if you come from a single-family home. I started my first job at 15. Mm. You know, I've been working since 15, so that's why I want to retire tomorrow. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but I've been working pretty much all of my life. I've worked more than what I've lived, you know. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. I worked a lot. Basically, that's kind of impossible, but we feel but, it. Yeah. <laughs> I am. She needs a nap, y'all. She's trying to say she needs a nap. Yeah, 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 yeah she was working before yeah. she got I came out the womb working. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we've been focusing more on entrepreneurship, which helps them make better decisions about where they're going mm-hmm. for college if they decide to go or if they decide to go to a trade school. You know, they're learning about things that they're naturally gifted at doing and how to process, how to make money off of that. So that's where we see cool. we're going in the future. Or even just in the present. Yeah. We've changed a lot of majors mm-hmm. so far. And I'd say, you know, I think so much of this, like, rawness and realness is appreciated, and you guys wouldn't be here without it. But you, you've obviously all had success in raising money and kind of breaking through these barriers with the philanthropic community. Mm-hmm. So curious, and, you know, you can get as specific as you want, but 
what are like best practices or what are organizations in the funding world that are doing it well locally or you know outside of Charlotte that you believe are supporting you that understand the trust-based philanthropy and are really doing the best they can to support black-led uh, work like yourself? Go ahead, Emmanuel. Miss a millionaire. Mm-hmm. I wish. I would. I would. I, I think one of the areas that um, specifically around uh, black-led leaders um, we could just be mindful of is in the space of fundraising, uh, it's all about relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you got to cultivate and develop those relationships. Um, as Jania and Jonathan even touched on it earlier, getting started is is a huge obstacle because mm-hmm. you got to develop the trust and, and people got to see and believe in the passion that you have to do the work that you say you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And it's imperative that you develop and cultivate those relationships, not only from the standpoint of your nonprofit organization, but one of the things that I appreciate about not only what Jonathan and Jania do, but you know they've taught me, mm-hmm. is leverage social media. Mm-hmm. Leverage social media to tell your story, mm-hmm. to engage with people in, in, in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be able to engage with them. Mm-hmm. And the, your ability to do that, to engage with people and to cultivate those relationships, both in person, leveraging social media, as well as through third parties who can articulate and share with people in the greater community without you being there. Mm-hmm. With, with you, with them being a mouth, mouthpiece for you is imperative and carries tremendous amount of weight. Because mm-hmm. the reality in Charlotte, when we talk about trust, you almost need somebody to, to vouch for you. Mm-hmm. Who's co-signing for you? Mm-hmm. Who believes in what you know? Aspire Community Capital is doing, mm-hmm. or Stiletto Boss is doing, mm-hmm. or and, and 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 who can then take that belief and share it with their friends and can mm-hmm. talk about it to the larger philanthropic community? It's just mm-hmm. as important. But cultivating relationships—that's the majority of the time that we spend yep. as leaders of the our respective organizations, be it cultivating relationships with people who w- want to participate in our programs, but just as importantly, cultivating those relationships with the broader Charlotte community, both in the philanthropic space, but also outside of those respective spaces, mm-hmm. so that they know and understand the work that we are doing. In- yeah. And I'll say, and even with cultivating relationships, I think some people go into it like, oh, I need money. And that's their energy that they're bringing, yes. mm-hmm. which is, which is, that's your truth. But I also <laughs> think there's a lot of funders that I have built relationships with that is mentorship, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, where I can just keep it real with them. I remember my first time meeting Rod with Wells Fargo. I just scheduled a meet Shout with him. Shout, Shout out, out to Rod. Shout out to Rod. Hey, Rod. I remember just having a meeting with Rod, and I said, look, this is where I'm at. I'm starting. Like, I just kept it so real with him about where I was at, where I was trying to go in and, like, give me some best practices, some pointers. I wasn't even asking him for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was just like, can we just have an off-the-record conversation? Mm. And I think that's the part of cultivating relationship where people just get so – money hungry they're just like well i just need money so i'm just gonna talk to you for that right, it's like right. no yeah. like this could really be a good mentor and i also say know your numbers mm. you know don't go up to somebody and be like i need some money and they're like okay what you need and then you're like uh right right right. <laughs> like, right what you gonna do with the 50 you yeah. know what you gonna do when you need six figures what you doing, what you with, doing it? with it and how and what does that mean you know and i think a lot of people don't really know their numbers to break it down enough to really to fa- fundraise anything. So then you get in 2500 500 you know, they're just like, get out of my face at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. So I'll say for the fellow introverts, 
if the relationship building I need, process I need is daunting. I you being an introvert. <laughs> 98% of the time. I need the data. <laughs> uh, for fellow introverts, create the return on investment. And I mean, a nonprofit, the nonprofit space determines or classifies it as your earned revenue model, right? Mm-hmm. When I first started Guard House, the first thing I started thinking about is how do these churches get the, the, um, the tithings in droves? Mm-hmm. How does Goodwill continuously have somebody coming into that store to thrift shop? Mm-hmm. How do we have the NFL mm-hmm. selling season passes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so for me, it's always been, especially going after a younger demographic, Mm-hmm. What can I create that produces a return on investment that's immediate for you? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times we look at nonprofit fundraising as, oh, we're going to give them, yeah, the data matters, but we're going to give them the data. And because they help the life, it's going to be great. They're going to feel good. Right. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's, it's honestly, it's unrealistic. Like when you're talking to your funder, that makes them feel good. Yeah. Some folks might still feel good, you know, right. hearing it. But some people just need that immediate return on investment, whether if that's an experience, mm-hmm. whether if that's a tangible item, mm-hmm. that is something that is missed out a lot when it comes to grassroots nonprofits is that they're not thinking about what can be their immediate return on investments for potential donors. Mm-hmm. And it can be as easy, and this is where our um, panel discussion started to uh, go mm-hmm. <laughs> spiraling, mm-hmm. is that think about the programming that you're already doing. Right. Charge. Yeah. Charge, not the person that you're not the person that you're providing the support to, but the person that wants association with the impact that you're making in the community. Mm-hmm. If you're already doing something that's so simple as um, just because I keep thinking about cookies, I'm never going to sell cookies. Well, that's a lie. You probably um, will. I probably will. Yeah, yeah, look, yeah. Girl I'll Scouts, buy one. Yeah. Listen, I know a cookie lady. I know a cookie lady. Don't get over the brown- <laughs> with, with some brownie crumbles. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but just take for example, Girl Scout cookies. Now, granted, how much do they make off of that? I don't know. A lot. But that's that's branding. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's literally almost a holiday for the what the two weeks that they actually are selling. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, and they made a competition. A competition. <laughs> yeah. Sell cookies. Yeah. You making? Oh my gosh! But but I think that that's it. I, th- <laughs> I think that Jonathan certainly hits on something yeah. when and, and 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 this was mentioned earlier on in the conversation. We lead organizations that have a 501c3 designation mm-hmm. but we are businesses yes yeah, we just gave business advice yes <laughs> straight up business advice what you selling yeah exactly <laughs> and, and i think that that's part of the discussion that we need to have more of yeah. mm-hmm. is is to stop seeing ourselves as just nonprofit organizations and really start thinking about ourselves as small business owners mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how and what is it that we sell and, and who should pay for it? And how much should it be? Mm-hmm. And to really have those kind of candid and honest and genuine conversations about that. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. that might be kind of hard for some people to digest. But the reality is that's how we make progress. Yeah. This is great. And I appreciate you all so much. We're going to get you out of here, hopefully, on a few fun and fast questions. Because I know we could go we could really all day for game. a minute, right? <laughs> uh, the, the world, also world famous, Rashawn Peak uh, asked a question about what keeps you up at night at Black, as Black Lab Founders. So curious in a sentence or so, what keeps you up at night f- for your work and your experience, Jonathan? Wow, you would go with me first. Um, deadlines, mm. like making sure that they're being hit, especially as a black-led nonprofit, is extremely important that you're meeting them because at any moment, if you miss one, you're out. Mm. Yeah. I think for me now that I have 
staff and support, making sure that my staff feels the impact that they have on the people that we serve mm-hmm. and that they don't go home feeling heavy, mm-hmm. even though I'm carrying the brunt of the heaviness, but it's something powerful about working somewhere and you love what you do. Mm-hmm. And I can truly say, even though it does keep me up at night, I love what I get to do every day. I'm very grateful for that. So I just want to make sure my staff feels the same thing. So mm-hmm. more around thought leadership is what keeps me up. And I would say mine is probably a combination of both of those. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad they went before me. <laughs> um, I certainly would uh, echo both of what Jonathan and Jenny shared, because I think for me, it's not only about ensuring my staff embodies and feels uh, greatly appreciated, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and that they get to experience the same things that I experience as the leader of the organization and seeing the impact that we have on the people in the communities mm-hmm. that we serve. Um, but just as importantly as that is the deadlines and the responsibilities and and the commitments that we make as leaders of our respective organizations and to be sure that we can live up to those expectations and those commitments and deadlines that we make commitments mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can be very daunting in some, ex- in some instances, while at the same time giving a great sense of gratitude and appreciation mm-hmm. when we know that, you know, the people that we're serving, be it our board of directors, our staff, or our constituents, feel and feel appreciated and mm-hmm. value what it is that we've brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll just add inflation. Inflation keeps me up right now because, Lord Jesus. People are still spending money. People are, but these kids like to eat snacks. <laughs> yeah. And snacks, <laughs> it's like, well, good I, God. Listen. These Capri Suns, it's just, I can't. Jonathan, what musical <laughs> artist are you listening to right now? Beyonce's Renaissance album. Huh? Strong Chokehold. Same. <laughs> it has me in a chokehold. Three, you know three what? Three for three? I, I've gone back old school. <laughs> okay. I'm listening into Stevie Wonder. Oh. Songs okay. to the Key of Life. Yes. yes. Maybe an influencer of Beyonce at some point. Probably, yes. Right? yes. I'm surprised she didn't yeah. sample it. She probably, it's, it's, it's coming. coming. If there's not a, a song and, and that compilation that doesn't move you, then, yeah, then you, you something wrong. Something wrong. Something wrong with your body. All right, last question. We'll get you out of here. Jonathan, what does square pizza remind you of Elio's pizza that my mom used to make because you know she was a single parent. Mm. <laughs> so sorry, I'm <laughs> equating your podcast to <laughs> not poverty. I wasn't in poverty, but hard times. <laughs> Square pizza remind me of the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, that's the same question for me. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> it reminds me of Jet's pizza mm. with me eating it on Friday because mm-hmm. that's what I used to eat all the time on Friday. It was my treat, okay. my guilty meal. So when when I think of square pizza, I think of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of Chi Town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and and then a couple of times that I've had a chance to visit, I've had the best squared pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, so any reference to squared pizza, it brings to Chicago to my mind. What's well, great, yeah. I appreciate the work you do. So grateful to get to know you. Grateful you're in the community doing the work. Um, appreciate you joining the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. It has us. been a pleasure. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.